Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven Story Mountain, Volume 7, Book 2, Chapter 1, With a Great Price, Part 1. There's a paradox that lies at the very heart of human existence. It must be apprehended before any lasting happiness is possible in the soul of a man. And the paradox is this. Man's nature by itself can do little or nothing to settle his most important problems. If we follow nothing but our natures, our own philosophies, our own level of ethics, we end up in hell. This would be a depressing thought if it were not purely abstract, because in the concrete order of things, God gave man a nature that was ordered to a supernatural life. He created man with a soul that was made not to bring itself to perfection in its own order, but to be perfected by him in an order infinitely beyond the reach of human powers. We were never destined to lead purely natural lives, and therefore we were never destined in God's plan for a purely natural beatitude. Our nature, which is a free gift of God, was given to us to be perfected and enhanced by another free gift that is not do it. This free gift is sanctifying grace, it perfects our nature with the gift of a life, an intellection, a love, a mode of existence infinitely above its own level. If a man were to arrive even at the abstract pinnacle of natural perfection, God's work would not even be half done. It would be only about to begin. For the real work is the work of grace and the infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. What is grace? It is God's own life shared by us. God's life is love. Deus caritas est. By grace we are able to share in the infinitely selfless love of him who is such pure actuality that he needs nothing and therefore cannot conceivably exploit anything for selfish ends. Indeed, outside of him there is nothing, and whatever exists exists by his free gift of its being, so one of the notions that's absolutely contradictory to the perfection of God is selfishness. It is metaphysically impossible for God to be selfish because the existence of everything that is depends upon his gift, depends upon his unselfishness. When a ray of light strikes a crystal, it gives a new quality to the crystal. And when God's infinitely disinterested love plays upon a human soul, the same kind of thing takes place. And that is is the life called sanctifying grace. The soul of man, left to its own natural level, is a potentially lucid crystal left in darkness. It is perfect in its own nature, but it lacks something that it can only receive from outside and above itself. But when the light shines in it, it becomes in a manner transformed into light and seems to lose its nature in the splendor of a higher nature, the nature of the light that is in it. So the natural goodness of man, his capacity for love, which must always be, in some sense, selfish if it remains in the natural order, becomes transfigured and transformed when the love of God shines in it. What happens when a man loses himself completely in the divine life within him? This perfection is only for those who are called the saints, for those rather who are the saints and who live in the light of God alone. For the ones who are called saints by human opinion on earth may very well be devils, and their light may very well be darkness, for as far as the light of God is concerned, we are owls. It blinds us, 
and as soon as it strikes us, we are in darkness. People who look like saints to us are often not so, and those who do not look like saints very often are, and the greatest saints are sometimes the most obscure. Our Lady, St. Joseph. Christ established his church, among other reasons, in order that men might lead one another to him, and in the process sanctify themselves and one another. For in this work it is Christ who draws us to himself through the action of our fellow men. We must check the inspirations that come to us in the depths of our own conscience against the revelation that is given to us with divinely certain guarantees by those who have inherited in our midst the place of Christ's apostle, by those who speak to us in the name of Christ, and, as it were, in his own person. Qui vos audit me audit, qui vos spernet me spernet. When it comes to accepting God's own authority about things that cannot possibly be known in any way except as revealed by his authority, people consider it insanity to incline their ears and listen. Things that cannot be known in any other way, they will not accept from this source. And yet, they will meekly and passively accept the most appalling lies from newspapers when they scarcely need to crane their necks to see the truth in front of them, over the top of the sheet they're holding in their hands. For example, the very thought of an imprimatur on the front of a book, the approbation of a bishop allowing the book to be printed on the grounds that it contains safe doctrine, is something that drives some people almost out of their minds with indignation. One day, in the month of February 1937, I happened to have five or ten loose dollars burning a hole in my pocket. I was on Fifth Avenue, for some reason or other, and was attracted by the window of Scribner's bookstore, all full of bright new books. That year I had signed up for a course in French medieval literature. My mind was turning back, in a way, to the things I remembered from the old days in St. Antoine, the deep, naive, rich simplicity of the 12th and 13th centuries was beginning to speak to me again. I had written a paper on a legend of a jongleur de Notre-Dame compared with a story from the Fathers of the Desert in Mignon's Latin Patrology. I was being drawn back into the Catholic atmosphere, and I could feel the health of it, even in the merely natural order working already within me. Now in Scribner's window I saw a book called The Spirit of Medieval Philosophy. I went inside and took it off the shelf and looked at the table of contents and at the title page, which was deceptive, because it said the book was made up of a series of lectures that had been given at the University of Aberdeen. That was no recommendation, to me especially, but it threw me off track as to the possible identity and character of Etienne Gilson, who wrote the book. I bought it then, together with one other book that I have completely forgotten, and on my way home in the Long Island train, I unwrapped the package to gloat over my acquisitions. It was only then that I saw on the first page of the Spirit of Medieval Philosophy the small print which said, Nihil obstat imprimatur. The feeling of disgust and deception struck me like a knife in the pit of the stomach. I felt like I'd been cheated. They should have warned me it was a Catholic book. Then I would never have bought it. As it was, I was tempted to throw the thing out the window at the houses of Woodside, get rid of it as something dangerous and unclean. Such is the terror that's aroused in the enlightened modern mind by a little innocent Latin and the signature of a priest. It is impossible to communicate to a Catholic the number and complexity of fearful associations that a little thing like this can carry with it. First of all, it's in Latin, 
a difficult, ancient, and obscure tongue. That implies, to the mind that has roots in Protestantism, all sorts of sinister secrets, which the priests are supposed to cherish and to conceal from common men in this unknown language. Then, the mere fact that they should pass judgment on the character of a book, permit people to read it, that in itself is fraught with terror. It immediately conjures up the real and imaginary excesses of the Inquisition. That is something of what I felt when I opened Gilson's book. For you must understand that while I admired Catholic culture, I'd always been afraid of the Catholic Church. That is a rather common position in the world today. After all, I had not bought a book on medieval philosophy without realizing that it would be Catholic philosophy. But the imprimatur told me that what I read would be in full conformity with that fearsome and mysterious thing, Catholic dogma. And the fact struck me with an impact against which everything in me reacted with repugnance and fear. Now in the light of all this, I consider that it was surely a real grace that, instead of getting rid of the book, I actually read it. Not all of it, it's true, but more than I used to read books that deep. When I think of the numbers of books that I had on my shelf in the little room in Douglaston that had once been Pop's Den, books which I had bought and never even read, I am more astounded than ever at the fact that I actually read this one, and what's more, remembered it. And the one big concept which I got out of the pages was something that was to revolutionize my whole life. It is all contained in one of those dry, outlandish, technical compounds that the scholastic philosophers were so prone to use. The word asatis. In this one word, which can be applied to God alone, and which expresses his most characteristic attribute, I discovered an entirely new concept of God, a concept which showed me at once that the belief of Catholics was by no means the vague and rather superstitious hangover from an unscientific age that I believed it to be. On the contrary, here was a notion of God that was, at the same time, deep, precise, simple, and accurate. And what is more, charged with implications which I could not even begin to appreciate, but which I could at least dimly estimate, even with my own lack of philosophical training. Asatis. The English equivalent is a transliteration. Aseity simply means the power of a being to exist absolutely in virtue of itself, not as caused by itself, but as requiring no cause, no other justification for its existence, except that its very nature is to exist. There can only be one such being, and that is God. And to say that God exists, a se, of and by, and by reason of himself, is merely to say that God is being itself. Ego sum qui sum. And this means that God must enjoy complete independence, not only as regards everything outside, but also as regards everything within himself. This notion made such a profound impression on me that I made a pencil note at the top of the page. Aseity of God. God is being per se. I observe it now on the page, for I brought the book to the monastery with me, and although I was not sure where it had gone, I found it on the shelves in Father Abbott's room the other day, and I have it here before me. I marked three other passages, so perhaps the best thing would be to copy them down. Better than anything I could say, they will convey the impact of the book on my mind. When God says that he is being, reads the first sentence so marked, and if what he says 
is to have any intelligible meaning to our minds, it can only mean this, that he is the pure act of existing. Pure act, therefore excluding all imperfection in the order of existing, therefore excluding all change, all becoming, all beginning or end, all limitation. But from this fullness of existence, if I had been capable of considering it deeply enough, I would soon have found that the fullness of all perfection could easily be argued. But another thing that struck me was an important qualification the author made. He distinguished between the concepts of ends in genera, the abstract notion of being in general, and ends infinitum, the concrete and the real infinite being, who himself transcends all our conceptions. And so I marked the following words, which were my first step toward St. John of the Cross. Beyond all sensible images and all conceptual determinations, God affirms himself as the absolute act of being in its pure actuality. Our concept of God, a mere feeble analog of a reality which overflows it in every direction, can be made explicit only in the judgment. Being is being, an absolute positing at that which, lying beyond every object, contains in itself the sufficient reason of objects. And that is why we can rightly say that the very excess of positivity which hides the divine being from our eyes is, nevertheless, the light which lights up all the rest. Ipsa caligo summa est mentis illuminatio. His Latin quotation was from St. Bonaventure's Itinerarium. The third sentence of Gilson that I marked in those few pages read as follows. When St. Jerome says that God is his own origin and the cause of his own substance, he does not mean, as Descartes does, that God in a certain way posits himself in being by his almighty power as a cause, but simply that we must not look outside of God for a cause of the existence of God. I think the reason why these statements and others like them made such a profound impression on me lay deep in my own soul, and it was this. I had never had an adequate notion of what Christians meant by God. I had simply taken it for granted that the God in whom religious people believed and to whom they attributed the creation and government of all things was a noisy and dramatic and passionate character, a vague, jealous, hidden being, the objectification of all their own desires and strivings and subjective ideals. The truth is that the concept of God which I had always entertained and which I had accused Christians of teaching to the world was the concept of a being who was simply impossible. He was infinite and yet finite, perfect and imperfect, eternal and changing, subject to all the variations of emotion, love, sorrow, hate, revenge that men are prey to. How could this fatuous, emotional thing be without beginning and without end, the creator of all? I had taken the dead letter of Scripture at its very deadest, and it had killed me, according to the saying of St. Paul. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. I think one cause of my profound satisfaction with what I now read was that God had been vindicated in my own mind. There is in every intellect a natural extingency for a true concept of God. We are born with the thirst to know and to see him, and therefore it cannot be otherwise. I know that many people are or call themselves atheists, 
simply because they are repelled and offended by statements about God made in imaginary and metaphorical terms which they are not able to interpret and comprehend. They refuse these concepts of God not because they despise God, but perhaps because they demand a notion of him more perfect than they generally find, and because ordinary figurative concepts of God could not satisfy them. They turn away and think that there are no others. Or worse still, they refuse to listen to philosophy on the ground that it is nothing but a web of meaningless words spun together for the justification of the same old hopeless falsehoods. What a relief it was for me now to discover not only that no idea of ours, let alone any image, could adequately represent God, but also that we should not allow ourselves to be satisfied with any such knowledge of him. The result was that I at once acquired an immense respect for Catholic philosophy and for the Catholic faith, and that last thing was the most important of all. I now at least recognized that faith was something that had a very definite meaning and a most cogent necessity. If this much was a great thing, it was about all that I could do at the moment. I could recognize that those who thought about God had a good way of considering him and that those who believed in him really believed in someone, and their faith was more than a dream. Further than that, it seemed I could not go for the time being. How many there are in the same situation? They stand in the stacks of libraries and turn over the pages of St. Thomas's Summa with a kind of curious reverence. They talk in their seminars about Thomas and Scotus and Augustine and Bonaventure, and they're familiar with Maritain and Gilson, and they have read all the poems of Hopkins, and indeed they know more about what is best in the Catholic literary and philosophical tradition than most Catholics ever do on this earth. They sometimes go to Mass and wonder at the dignity and restraint of the old liturgy. They are impressed by the organization of a church in which everywhere the priests, even the most ungifted, are able to preach at least something of a tremendous, profound, unified doctrine, and to dispense mysteriously efficacious help to all who come to them with troubles and needs. In a certain sense, these people have a better appreciation of the Church and of Catholicism than many Catholics have, an appreciation which is detached and intellectual and objective. But they never come into the Church. They stand and starve in the doors of the banquet, the banquet to which they surely realize they are invited, while those more poor, more stupid, and less gifted, less educated, sometimes even less virtuous than they, enter in and are filled at those tremendous tables. When I had put this book down and had ceased to think explicitly about its arguments, its effect began to show itself in my life. I began to have a desire to go to church, and a desire more sincere and more mature and more deep-seated than I had ever had before. After all, I had never before had so great a need the only place I could think of was the Episcopal Church down the road, Old Zion Church, among the locust trees, where Father used to play the organ. I think the reason for this was that God wanted me to climb back the way I had fallen down. I had come to despise the Church of England, the Protestant Episcopal Church, and he wanted me to do away with what was there of pride and self-complacency even in that. He would not let me become a Catholic, having behind me a rejection of another church that was not the right kind of a rejection, but one that was sinful in itself, rooted in pride, expressed in contumely. 
This time I came back to Zion Church not to judge it, not to condemn the poor minister, but to see if it could not do something to satisfy the obscure need for faith that was beginning to make itself felt in my soul. It was a nice enough church. It was pleasant to sit there in the pretty little white building with the sun pouring through the windows on Sunday mornings. The choir of surpliced men and women and the hymns we all sang did not exactly send me up into ecstasy, but at least I no longer made fun of them in my heart. And when it came to say the Apostles' Creed, I stood up and said it with the rest, hoping within myself that God would give me the grace some day to really believe it. The minister was called Mr. Riley. Pop had always called him Dr. Riley to his great embarrassment. Despite the Irish name, he detested Catholics, like most Protestant ministers. He was always very friendly to me and used to get into conversation about intellectual matters and modern literature, even men like D.H. Lawrence, with whom he was thoroughly familiar. It seems that he counted very much on this sort of thing, considered it an essential part of his ministry to keep up with the latest books and be able to talk about them, to maintain contact with people by that means. But that was precisely one of the things that made the experience of going to his church such a sterile one for me. He did not like or understand what was considered most advanced in modern literature. And as a matter of fact, one did not expect him to. One did not demand that of him. Yet it was modern literature and politics that he talked about, not religion and God. You felt that the man did not know his vocation, did not know what he was supposed to be. He had taken upon himself some function in society which was not his and which was, indeed, not a necessary function at all. When he did get around to preaching about some truth of the Christian religion, he practically admitted in the pulpit, as he did in private to anyone who cared to talk about it, that he did not believe most of these doctrines, even in the extremely diluted form in which they were handed out to Protestants. The Trinity? What did he want with the Trinity? And as for the strange medieval notions about the Incarnation, well, that was simply too much to ask of a reasonable man. Once he preached a sermon on music at Zion Church and sent me word that I must be sure to be there, for I would hear him make mention of my father. That is just about typical of Protestant pulpit oratory in the more liberal quarters. I went dutifully that morning, but before he got around to the part in which I was supposed to be personally interested, I got an attack of my head spinning and went out into the air. When the sermon was being preached, I was sitting on the church steps in the sun, talking to the black-gowned verger, or whatever he was called. By the time I felt better, the sermon was over. I cannot say that I went to this church very often, but the measure of my zeal may be judged by the fact that I once went even in the middle of the week. I forget what the occasion, Ash Wednesday or Holy Thursday, there were one or two women in the place and myself lurking in one of the back benches. We said some prayers. It was soon over. By the time it was, I had worked up the courage to take the train into New York and go to Columbia for the day. Part 2 Now I come to speak of the real part Columbia seems to have been destined to play in my life in the providential designs of God. Poor Columbia. It was founded by sincere Protestants as a college, predominantly religious. The only thing that remains of that is the university motto, In Lumine Tuo Videbimus Lumen, one of the deepest and most beautiful lines of the Psalms. In thy light we shall see light. It is precisely about grace. It is a line that might serve as the foundation stone of all Christian and scholastic learning 
and which simply has nothing whatever to do with the standards of education in modern Colombia, it might profitably be changed to in lumine Randall Vidabimus Dewey. Yet strangely enough, it was on this big factory of a campus that the Holy Ghost was waiting to show me the light in his own light, and one of the chief means he used through which he operated was human friendship. God has willed that we should depend on one another for our salvation, and all strive together for our own mutual good and our common salvation. Scripture teaches us that this is especially true in the supernatural order, in the doctrine of the mystical body of Christ, which flows necessarily from Christian teachings on grace. Quote, You are the body of Christ and members of one another, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I need not thy help, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And if one member suffer anything, all the members suffer with it. And if one member glory, all the others rejoice with it. Unquote. So now is the time to tell a thing I could not realize then, but which has become very clear to me, that God brought me and a half dozen others together at Columbia and made us friends in such a way that our friendship would work powerfully to rescue us from the confusion and the misery in which we had come to find ourselves, partly through our own fault and partly through a complex set of circumstances which might be grouped together under the heading of the modern world, modern society. But the qualification modern is unnecessary and perhaps unfair. The traditional gospel term the world will do well enough. All our salvation begins on the level of common and natural and ordinary things. That is why the whole economy of the sacraments, for instance, rests in its material element upon plain and ordinary things like bread and wine and water and salt and oil. And so it was for me. Books and ideas and poems and stories, pictures and music, buildings, cities, places, philosophies were to be the materials on which grace would work. But these things are themselves not enough. The more fundamental instinct of fear for my own preservation came in, in a minor sort of way, in this strange, half-imaginary sickness which nobody could diagnose completely. The coming war and all the uncertainties and confusions and fears that followed necessarily from that and all the rest of the violence and injustice that were in the world had a very important part to play as well. All these things were bound together and fused and vitalized and prepared for the action of grace, both in my own soul and in the souls of at least one or two of my friends, merely by our friendship and association together. And it fermented in our sharing of our own ideas and miseries and headaches and perplexities and fears and difficulties and desires and hangovers and all the rest. I've already mentioned Mark Van Doren. It would not be exactly true to say that he was a kind of nucleus around whom this concretion of friends formed itself. This would not be accurate. Not all of us took his courses, and those who did did not do so all at the same time. And yet, nevertheless, our common respect for Mark's sanity and wisdom did much to make us aware of how much we ourselves had in common. Perhaps it was for me, personally, more than for the others, that Mark's course worked in this way. I am thinking of one particular incident. It was fall of 1936, just at the beginning of the new school year, on one of those first bright, crazy days when everybody is full of ambition. It was the beginning of the year in which Pop was going to die, and my own resistance would cave in, under the load of pleasures and ambitions I was too weak to carry, the year in which I would be all the time getting dizzy and in which I 
learned to fear the Long Island Railroad as if it were some kind of monster, and to shrink from New York as if it were the open wide mouth of some burning Aztec god. That day I did not foresee any of this. My veins were still bursting with the materialistic and political enthusiasms with which I had first come to Columbia, and indeed, in line with their general direction, I had signed up for courses that were more or less sociological and economic and historical. In the obscurity of the strange, half-conscious semi-conversion that had attended my retreat from Cambridge, I had tended more and more to be suspicious of literature, poetry, the things toward which my nature drew me, on the grounds that they might lead to a sort of futile aestheticism, a philosophy of escape. This had not involved me in any depreciation of people like Mark. However, it had just seemed more important to me that I should take some history course rather than anything that was still left of his for me to take. So now I was climbing one of the crowded stairways in Hamilton Hall to the room where I thought this history course was to be given. I looked into the room. The second row was filled with the unbrushed heads of those who every day at noon sat in the jester's editorial offices and threw paper airplanes around the room or drew pictures on the wall. Taller than any of them, and more serious, with a long face like a horse and a great mane of black hair on top of it, Bob Lax meditated on some incomprehensible woe and waited for someone to come in and begin to talk to them. It was when I had taken off my coat and put down my load of books that I found out that this was not the class I was supposed to be taking but Van Doren's course on Shakespeare. So I got up to go out. But when I got to the door, I turned around again and went back and sat down where I had been and stayed there. Later on, I went and changed everything with the registrar, so I remained in that class for the rest of the year. It was the best course I ever had at college, and it did me the most good in many different ways. It was the only place where I ever heard anything really sensible said about any of the things that were really fundamental. Life, death, time, love, sorrow, fear, wisdom, suffering, and eternity. A course in literature should never be a course in economics or philosophy or sociology or psychology. And I have explained how it was one of Marx's great virtues that he did not make it so. Nevertheless, the material of literature, and especially of drama, is chiefly human acts. That is, free acts, moral acts. And as a matter of fact, literature, drama, poetry make certain statements about these acts that can be made in no other way. That is precisely why you will miss all the deepest meaning of Shakespeare, Dante, and the rest if you reduce their vital and creative statements about life and men to the dry, matter-of-fact terms of history or ethics or some other science. They belong to a different order. Nevertheless, the great power of something like Hamlet, Coriolanus, or the Purgatorio, or Dunn's Holy Sonnets lies precisely in the fact that they are a kind of commentary on ethics and psychology and even metaphysics, even theology. Or sometimes it's the other way around, and all those sciences can serve as a commentary on these other realities, which we call plays, poems. All that year we were, in fact, talking about the deepest springs of human desire and hope and fear. We were considering all the most important realities, not indeed in terms of something alien to Shakespeare and poetry, but precisely in his own terms, with occasional intuitions of another order. And, as I have said, Mark's balanced and sensitive and clear way of seeing things, at once simple and yet capable of subtlety, 
being fundamentally scholastic, though not necessarily an explicitly Christian, presented these things in ways that made them live within us and with a life that was healthy and permanent and productive. This class was one of the few things that could persuade me to get on the train and go to Columbia at all. It was that year my only health until I came across and read that Gilson book. It was this year, too, that I began to discover who Bob Lacks was and that in him was a combination of Mark's clarity and my confusions and misery and a lot more besides that was his own. To name Robert Lacks in another way, he was a kind of combination of Hamlet and Elias, a potential prophet but without rage, a king but a Jew too, a mind full of tremendous and subtle intuitions, and every day he found less and less to say about them and resigned himself to being inarticulate. In his hesitation, though without embarrassment or nervousness at all, he would often curl his long legs all around a chair in seven different ways while he was trying to find a word with which to begin. He talked best sitting on the floor. And the secret of his constant solidity, I think, has always been a kind of natural instinctive spirituality, a kind of inborn direction to the living God. Lax has always been afraid that he was in a blind alley, and half aware that, after all, it might not be a blind alley, but God, infinity. He had a mind naturally disposed from the very cradle to a kind of affinity for Job and St. John of the Cross. And I now know that he was born so much of a contemplative that he will probably never be able to find how much. To sum it up, even the people who have always thought he was too impractical have always tended to venerate him, in the way people who value material security unconsciously venerate people who do not fear insecurity. In those days, one of the things we had most in common, although perhaps we did not talk about it so much, was the abyss that walked around in front of our feet everywhere we went and kept making us dizzy and afraid of trains and high buildings. For some reason, Lax developed an implicit trust in all my notions about what was good and bad for mental and physical health, perhaps because I was always very definite in my likes and dislikes. I am afraid it did not do him too much good, though, for even though I had my imaginary abyss, which broadened immeasurably and became ten times dizzier when I had a hangover, my ideas often tended to some particular place where we would hear this particular band and drink this special drink until the place folded up at four o'clock in the morning. The months went by, and most of the time I sat in Douglaston, drawing cartoons for the paper cup business and trying to do all the other things I was supposed to do. In the summer, Lax went to Europe, and I continued to sit in Douglaston, writing a long, stupid novel about a college football player who got mixed up in a lot of strikes in a textile mill. I did not graduate that June, although I nominally belonged to that year's class. I still had one or two courses to take, on account of having entered Columbia in February. In the fall of 1937, I went back to school, then with my mind a lot freer, since I was not burdened with any more of those ugly and useless jobs on the fourth floor. I could write and do the drawings I felt like doing for Jester. I began to talk more to Lax and to Ed Rice, who was now drawing better and funnier pictures than anybody else for the magazine. For the first time, I saw Cy Friedgood, who was full of a fierce and complex intellectuality, which he sometimes liked to present in the guise of a rather suspicious suavity. He was in love with a far more technical vocabulary than any of the rest of us possessed and was working at something in the philosophy graduate school. Seymour used to consciously affect a whole set of different kinds of duplicity 
of which he was proud, and he carried the mendacium jocosum, or humorous lie, to its utmost extension and frequency, you could sometimes gauge the falsity of his answers by their promptitude. The quicker, the falser. The reason for this was probably that he was thinking of something else, something very abstruse and far from the severe of your questions, and he could not be bothered to bring his mind all that way back to think up the real answer. For Lax and myself and Gibney, there was no inconvenience about this for two reasons. Since Seymour generally gave his false answers only to practical questions of fact, their falsity did not matter. We were all too impractical. Besides, his false answers were generally more interesting than the truth. Finally, since we knew they were false anyway, we had the habit of seeing all his statements in the common factual order by a kind of double standard, instituting a comparison between what he had said and the probable truth. And this cast many interesting and ironical lights upon life as a whole. In his house at Long Beach, where his whole family lived in a state of turmoil and confusion, there was a large, stupid police dog that got in everybody's way with his bowed head and slapped-down ears and amiable, guilty look. The first time I saw the dog, I asked, What's his name? Prince, said Seymour out of the corner of his mouth. It was a name to which the beast responded gladly. I guess he responded to any name and didn't care what you called him. So flattered was he to be called at all being as he knew an extremely stupid dog. So I went out on the boardwalk with the dog shouting, Hey, Prince! Hey, Prince! Seymour's wife Helen came along and heard me shouting all this and said nothing, imagining no doubt that it was some way I had of making fun of the brute. Later, Seymour or someone told me that Prince wasn't the dog's name, but they told me in such a way that I got the idea that his name was really Rex. So for some time after that, I called him, Hey, Rex! Hey, Rex! Several months later, after many visits to the house, I finally learned that the dog was called nothing like Rex or Prince, but Bunky. Moral theologians say that the mendacium jocosum in itself does not exceed a venial sin. Seymour and Lax were now rooming together in one of the dormitories, for Bob Gibney, with whom Lax had roomed the year before, had now graduated and was sitting in Port Washington with much the same dispositions with which I had been sitting in Douglaston, facing a not-too-dissimilar blank wall, the end of his own blind alley. He occasionally came into town to see Donna Eaton, who had a place on 112th Street, but no job and was more cheerful about her own quandary than the rest of us, because the worst that could happen to her was that she would at last run completely out of money and have to go back home to Panama. Gibney was not what she would call pious. In fact, he had an attitude that would be commonly called impious, only I believe God understood well enough that his violence and sarcasms covered a sense of deep metaphysical dismay, an anguish that was real, though not humble enough to be of much use to his own soul. What was materially impiety in him was directed more against common ideas and notions, which he saw or considered to be totally inadequate, and maybe it subjectively represented a kind of oblique zeal for the purity of God, this rebellion against the commonplace and trite, against mediocrity, religiosity. During the year that had passed, I suppose it must have been in the spring of 1937, both Gibney and Lax and Bob Gertie had all been talking about becoming Catholics. Bob Gertie was a very smart sophomore with the face of a child and a lot of curly hair on top of it, who took life seriously and had discovered courses on scholastic philosophy in the graduate school and had taken one of them. 
Gibney was interested in scholastic philosophy in much the same way as James Joyce was. He respected its intellectuality, particularly that of the Thomists, but there was not enough that was effective about his interest to bring about any kind of conversion. For the three or four years that I knew Gibney, he was always holding out for some kind of sign, some kind of a sensible and tangible interior jolt from God to get him started, some mystical experience or other. And while he waited and waited for this to come along, he did all the things that normally exclude and nullify the actions of grace. So in those days, none of them became Catholic. The most serious of them all in this matter was Lax. He was the one that had been born with the deepest sense of who God was, but he would not make a move without the others. And then there was myself, having read the spirit of medieval philosophy and having discovered that the Catholic conception of God was something tremendously solid, I had not progressed one step beyond this recognition, except that one day I had gone and looked up St. Bernard's Di Diligento Deo in the catalog of the university library. It was one of the books that Gilson had frequently mentioned, but when I found that there was no good copy of it except in Latin, I did not take it out. Now it was November 1937. One day, Lax and I were riding downtown on one of those buses you caught at the corner of 110th Street and Broadway. We had skirted the southern edge of Harlem, passing along the top of Central Park and the dirty lake full of rowboats. Now we were going down Fifth Avenue under the trees. Lax was telling me about a book he had been reading, which was Aldous Huxley's Ends and Means. He told me about it in a way that made me want to read it too. So I went to Scribner's bookstore and bought it and read it and wrote a whole article about it and gave the article to Barry Ulanoff, who was the editor of Review by that time. He accepted the article with a big Greek smile and printed it. And the smile was on account of the conversion it represented. I mean, the conversion in me, as well as in Huxley, although one of the points I tried to make was that perhaps Huxley's conversion should not have been taken as so much of a surprise. Huxley had been one of my favorite novelists in the days when I had been 16 and 17 and had built up a strange, ignorant philosophy of pleasure based on all the stories I was reading. And now everybody was talking about the way Huxley had changed. The chatter was all the more pleasant because of Huxley's agnostical grandfather and his biologist brother. Now the man was preaching mysticism. Huxley was too sharp and intelligent and had too much of a sense of humor to take any of the missteps that usually make such conversions look ridiculous and oafish. You could not laugh at him very well, at least not for any one concrete blunder. This was not one of those Oxford group conversions complete with a public confession. On the contrary, he had read widely and deeply and intelligently in all kinds of Christian and Oriental mystical literature and had come out with the astonishing truth that all this, far from being a mixture of dreams and magic and charlatanism, was very real and very serious. Not only was there such a thing as a supernatural order, but as a matter of concrete experience, it was accessible, very close at hand, and extremely near, an immediate and most necessary source of moral vitality, and one which could be reached most simply, most readily, by prayer, faith, detachment, and love. The point of his title was this, we cannot use evil means to attain a good end. Huxley's chief argument was that we were using the means that precisely made good ends impossible to attain. War, violence, reprisals, rapacity, 
and he traced our impossibility to the proper means to the fact that men were immersed in the material and animal urges of an element in their nature which was blind and crude and unspiritual. The main problem is to fight our way free from subjection to this more or less inferior element and to reassert the dominance of our mind and will to vindicate to those faculties for the spirit as a whole the freedom of action which it must necessarily have if we are to live like anything but wild beasts tearing each other to pieces. And the big conclusion from all this was we must practice prayer and asceticism. Asceticism? The very thought of such a thing was a complete revolution in my mind. The word had so far stood for a kind of weird and ugly perversion of nature, the masochism of men who had gone crazy in a warped and unjust society. What an idea! To deny the desires of one's flesh and even to practice disciplines that punished and mortified those desires? Until this day, these things had never succeeded in giving me anything but goose flesh. But of course, Huxley did not stress the physical angle of mortification and aestheticism, and that was right insofar as he was more interested in striking to the very heart of the matter and showing the ultimate positive principle underlying the need for detachment. He showed that this negation was not something absolute, sought for its own sake, but that it was a freeing, a vindication of our real selves, a liberation of the spirit from limits and bonds that were intolerable, suicidal, from a servitude to flesh that must ultimately destroy our whole nature and society and the world as well. Not only that, once the spirit was freed and returned to its own element, it was not alone there. It could find the absolute and perfect spirit, God. It could enter into union with him. And what is more, this union was not something vague and metaphorical, but it was a matter of real experience. What that experience amounted to, according to Huxley, might or might not have been the nirvana of Buddhists, which is the ultimate negation of all experience and all reality, whatever. But anyway, somewhere along the line, he quoted proofs that it was and could be a real and positive experience. The speculative side of the book, its strongest, was full, no doubt, of strange doctrines by reason of its very eclecticism, and the practical element, which was weak, inspired no confidence, especially when he tried to talk about a concrete social program. Huxley seemed not to be at home with the Christian term love, which sounded extraordinarily vague in his contexts, and which must nevertheless be the heart and life of all true mysticism. But out of it all, I took these two big concepts of a supernatural, spiritual order and the possibility of real, experimental contact with God. Huxley was thought by some people to be on the point of entering the church, but Ends and Means was written by a man who was not at ease with Catholicism. He quoted St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila indiscriminately with less orthodox Christian writers like Meister Eckhart. And on the whole, he preferred the Orient. It seemed to me that in discarding his family's tradition of materialism, he had to follow the old Protestant groove back into the heresies that make the material creation evil of itself, although I do not remember enough about him to accuse him of formally holding such a thing. Nevertheless, that would account for his sympathy for Buddhism and for the nihilistic character which he preferred to give to his mysticism and even to his ethics. This also made him suspicious, as the Albigensians had been, 
of the sacraments and the liturgical life of the church, and also of the doctrines like the Incarnation. With all that, I was not concerned. My hatred of war and my own personal misery in this particular situation and the general crisis of the world made me accept with my whole heart this revelation of the need for a spiritual life, an interior life, including some kind of mortification. I was content to accept the latter truth purely as a matter of theory, or at least to apply it most vociferously to one passion which was not strong in myself and did not need to be mortified, that of anger, hatred, while neglecting the ones that really need to be checked, like gluttony and lust. But the most important effect of the book on me was to make me start ransacking the university library for books on Oriental mysticism. I remember those winter days at the end of 1937 and beginning of 1938, peaceful days when I sat in the big living room at Douglaston, with the pale sun coming in the window by the piano, where one of my father's watercolors of Bermuda hung on the wall. The house was very quiet, with Pop and Bonamaman gone from it, and John Paul away trying to pass his courses at Cornell. I sat for hours with the big quarto volumes of the Jesuit Father Wigner's French translations of hundreds of strange Oriental texts. I have forgotten the titles, even the authors, and I never understood a word of what they said in the first place. I had the habit of reading fast without stopping, or stopping only rarely to take a note, and all these mysteries would require a great deal of thought even were a man who knew something about them to puzzle them out, and I was completely unfamiliar with anything of the kind. Consequently, the strange great jumble of myths and theories and moral aphorisms and elaborate parables made little or no real impression on my mind, except that I put the books down with the impression that mysticism was something very esoteric and complicated, and that we were all inside some huge being in whom we were involved and out of whom we evolved, and the thing to do was to involve ourselves back into him, again by a system of elaborate disciplines, subject more or less to the control of our own will. The absolute being was an infinite, timeless, peaceful, impersonal nothing. The only practical thing I got out of it was a system for going to sleep at night when you couldn't sleep. You lay flat in bed without a pillow, your arms at your sides and your legs straight out and relaxed all your muscles and you said to yourself, Now I have no feet. Now I have no feet. No feet. No legs. No knees. Sometimes it really worked and you really did manage to make it feel as if your feet and legs and the rest of your body had changed into air and vanished away. The only section of which it almost never worked was my head. And if I had not fallen asleep before I got that far, when I tried to wipe out my head, instantly my chest and stomach and legs and feet all came back to life with a most exasperating reality, and I did not get to sleep for hours. Usually, however, I managed to get to sleep quite quickly by this trick. I suppose it was a variety of autosuggestion, a kind of hypnotism, or else simply muscular relaxation, with the help of a little work on the part of an active fancy. Ultimately, I suppose all Oriental mysticism can be reduced to techniques that do the same thing, but in a far more subtle and advanced fashion. And if that is true, it is not mysticism at all. It remains purely in the natural order. That does not make it evil, per se, according to Christian standards, but it does not make it good in relation to the supernatural. It is simply more or less useless, except when it is mixed up with elements that are strictly diabolical, and then, of course, 
these dreams and annihilations are designed to wipe out all vital moral activity while leaving the personality in control of some nefarious principle, either of his own or from outside himself. It was with all this in my mind that I went and received my diploma of Bachelor of Arts from one of the windows in the registrar's office, and immediately afterwards put my name down for some courses in the Graduate School of English. The experience of the last year, with the sudden collapse of all my physical energy and the diminution of the brash vigor of my worldly ambitions, had meant that I had turned in terror from the idea of anything so active and uncertain as the newspaper business. This registration in the graduate school represented the first remote step of a retreat from the fight for money and fame, from the active and worldly life of conflict and competition. If anything, I would now be a teacher and live the rest of my life in the relative peace of a college campus, reading and writing books. That the influence of the Huxley book had not by any means lifted me bodily out of the natural order overnight is evident from the fact that I decided to specialize in 18th century English literature and to choose my subject for a Master of Arts thesis from somewhere in that century. As a matter of fact, I had already half decided upon a subject by the time the last pile of dirty snow had melted from the borders of Southfield. It was an unknown novelist of the second half of the 18th century called Richard Graves, the most important thing he wrote was a novel called Spiritual Quixote, which was, in the feeling tradition, a satire on the more excited kind of Methodists and other sects of religious enthusiasts in England at that time. I was to work under Professor Tyndall, and this would have been just his kind of a subject. He was an agnostic and a rationalist who took a deep and amused interest in all the strange perversions of the religious instinct that our world has seen in the last 500 years. He was just finishing a book on D.H. Lawrence, which discussed not too kindly Lawrence's attempts to build up a synthetic homemade religion of his own out of all the semi-pagan spiritual jetsam that came his way. All Lawrence's friends were very much annoyed by it when it was published. I remember that in that year, one of Tyndall's favorite topics of conversation was the miracles of Mother Cabrini, who had just been beatified. He was amused by these, too, because, as with all rationalists, it was for him an article of faith that miracles cannot happen. I remember with what indecision I went on into the spring trying to settle the problem of a subject with finality. Yet the thing worked itself out quite suddenly, so suddenly that I do not remember what brought it about. One day I came running down out of the carpenter library and passed along the wire fences by the tennis courts in the sun with my mind made up that there was only one possible man in the 18th century for me to work on, the one poet who had least to do with his age and was most in opposition to everything it stood for. I had just had in my hands the small, neatly printed, Nonesuch Press edition of the poems of William Blake, and I now knew what my thesis would probably be. It would take in his poems and some aspect of his religious ideas. In the Columbia bookstore, I bought the same edition of Blake on credit. I'd paid for it two years later. It was a blue cover, and I suppose, and is now hidden somewhere in our monastery library, the part to which nobody has access. And that is all right. I think the ordinary Trappist would be only dangerously bewildered by the prophetic books, and those who still might be able to profit by Blake have a lot of other things to read that are still better. For my own part, I no longer need him. He has done his work for me, and he did it very thoroughly. I hope that I will see him in heaven. 
But oh, what a thing it was to live in contact with the genius and holiness of William Blake for that year, that summer, writing the thesis. I had some beginning of an appreciation of his greatness above the other men of his time in England. But from this distance, from the hill where I now stand, looking back, I can really appreciate his stature. To assimilate him to the men of the ending 18th century would be absurd. I will not do that. All those conceited and wordy and stuffy little characters. As for the other romantics, how feeble and hysterical their inspirations seem next to the tremendously genuine and spiritual fire of William Blake. Even Coleridge, and the rare moments when his imagination struck the pitch of true creativeness, was only an artist, an imaginer, not a seer, a maker, and not a prophet. Perhaps all the great romantics were capable of putting words together more sensibly than Blake, and yet he, with all his mistakes of spelling, turned out the greater poet because his was the deeper and more solid inspiration. He wrote better poetry when he was twelve than Shelley wrote in his whole life, and it was because at twelve he had already seen, I think, Elias standing under a tree in the field south of London. It was Blake's problem to try and adjust himself to a society that understood neither him nor his kind of faith and love. More than once, smug and inferior minds conceived it to be their duty to take this man Blake in hand and direct and form him, to try and canalize what they recognized as talent into some kind of a conventional channel. And always this meant the cold and heartless disparagement of all that was vital and real to him in faith and art. There were years of all kinds of petty persecution from many different quarters, until finally Blake parted from his would-be patrons and gave up all hope of an alliance with a world that thought he was crazy and went on his own way. It was when he did this and settled down as an engraver for good that the prophetic books were no longer necessary. In the latter part of his life, having discovered Dante, he came into contact through him with Catholicism which he described as the only religion that really taught the love of God, and his last years were relatively full of peace. He never seemed to have felt any desire to hunt out a priest in England where Catholicism was still practically outlawed, but he died with a blazing face and great songs of joy bursting from his heart. As Blake worked himself into my system, I became more and more conscious of the necessity of a vital faith and the total unreality and unsubstantiality of the dead, selfish rationalism which had been freezing my mind and will for the last seven years. By the time the summer was over, I was to become conscious of the fact that the only way to live was to live in a world that was charged with the presence and the reality of God. To say that is to say a great deal, and I don't want to say it in a way that conveys more than the truth. I will have to limit the statement by saying, that it was still for me more an intellectual realization than anything else, and it had not yet struck down into the roots of my will. The life of the soul is not knowledge, it is love, since love is the act of the supreme faculty, the will by which man is formally united to the final end of all his strivings, by which man becomes one with God. <laughs>